The following content is made possible by Andy Beach, Will Harris, and Paul Boyer. This is your hyperbole-free coronavirus update for April 29th. As I record this at 3.20 p.m. Pacific time, there are 1,076,705 confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States with 61,180 deaths. Today marks the eighth day since we hit our high in a per-day death total at 2,683 on April 21st. Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida announced that there will be a phase one reopening of his state beginning Monday in all but the hardest hit counties of Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach. That includes the reopening of retail stores and limited capacity on dine-in restaurants. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy said that he will reopen state and county parks and golf courses effective May 2nd. This brings his state among the hardest hit in line with neighboring states. And that has been your hyperbole-free coronavirus update. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. Joining you from Oakland, California, under lockdown, where our shelter-in-place order just got extended until May 30th. Ooh, baby, this is going to be a strange month coming up. We're going to have a lot of different states doing a lot of different things, and we're going to see how those things affect the people that live there. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. We're going to talk about Tara Reid and specifically the new Biden talking points that were just sent out about how to handle Tara Reid, how that affects the VP selection. And we are going to hear about the criminalization of disease, specifically the lessons that we can learn from the HIV outbreak during the 80s and the 90s. That's coming up in our interview a little bit later. But but first, let me go back to where we are right now in our, our, our government's handling, both local, state, federal, of this coronavirus crisis. As I mentioned in the hyperbole-free update, we seem to be on the other end of things. At, at the very least, we have have crossed the worst of the first wave. Now, how bad it is coming down, obviously this all remains to be seen. But there's this one thing that I, I've 
I haven't wanted to criticize, but we're getting to the point where now I feel like I want to I want to put voice to my opinions. And before I do, let me say why I didn't want to criticize it before. I very much do believe that there is a moment where leadership needs to be respected in crisis. I think that in moments where everything is going haywire, even if you don't agree with the leadership, walking in the same direction is better than everybody walking in their own. And by and large, when you're talking about a gigantic group, it's unlikely that we're going to sprint toward a cliff. And so I've been complimentary about the governor of, of California, where I live, Gavin Newsom. I'm very much a believer in scoreboard. Scoreboard. We're projected in the state of California, the most populous state in the union, might I add, to have less than 2,000 deaths total. That's including the second most populous state, or city rather, in Los Angeles, and the second most dense city in the San Francisco Bay Area. So you have... The two things that New York is, now granted, New York's both. And we're going to get out with under 2,000 deaths. That's crazy if that that holds. So cheers. Cheers to Gavin Newsom. Cheers to Garchetti down there in L.A. Cheers to Libby Schaff here in Oakland. Cheers to London Breed in, in San Francisco. But there's just this one thing, and it's starting to get on my nerves. It's one code word. We're following the science. And I love science. I I deeply respect science. I like to think that I try to solve the problems in my life with a scientific verve. The way I understand science is that it is inoculated as best it can be when practiced well away from emotion and focuses only on yes or no. And then from there, why? The thing about science is that it is not hidden. It is not obscured. It is public, as public as it possibly can be. There's a reason why scientific journals are peer-reviewed, because there is no art through obscurity when it comes to science. It needs to be checked and rechecked. So these this, this tweet thread that Gavin Newsom wrote yesterday, I both Loved and hated, and I'll explain why. I'll read it here. California is flattening the curve, but the reality is that COVID-19 is not going away soon. Our reopening must be gradual, guided by public health and science, and will be done in the following stages. Stage one, safety and preparedness. This is where we are now. Staying home and flattening the curve, building our testing, PBE and hospital capacity, making our essential workplace as safe as possible and preparing sector by sector guidelines for a safe reopening. Okay, well, let's stop here. Stage one sounds great, right? This is what we're doing right now. This is what you're doing right now. So how are you doing at it? 
because I know that the populace is staying home as best as the people that want to listen to it can, right? Sure, there's a bunch of ding-dongs that might be out there. There's a bunch of people that might principally believe that they should not be cooped up, but by and large, this is something that's gone on for a while and people are doing what they can. So since our butts in the breeze on this one, everybody can see what we're doing. How are you doing up there in Sacramento? How is our testing? How is our PPE? How is our hospital capacity? Because based on what I can tell, our hospital capacity is pretty good. But if our testing isn't where we need it to be, what I need to know is how far off are we from that? Specifically, when we get to stage two, lower risk workplaces. And I, again, read from Gavin Newsom's Twitter. Gradually reopening some lower risk workplaces with adaptations. This will include retail, for example, curbside pickup, manufacturing, offices where telework is not possible, and more public spaces. So I assume this would be public parks and stuff like that. All right, so that's stage two. We're not there yet. We're not at the place where retail establishments can even sell stuff for curbside pickup. Okay, what do the testing numbers need to be like, the PPE numbers need to be like, and the hospital capacity need to be like for that to happen? Give me a roadmap. Give me objective things that need to be hit. You know, like a science experiment. Stage three, high-risk workplaces. Gradually reopening some higher-risk environments with adaptations and limits on size and gatherings. This would include personal care, hair salons, nail salons, gyms, movie theaters, sports without live audiences, and in-person religious services. All right, so that's stage three. That's a stage, that's two stages beyond where we are now. And my same questions remain. What do we need to do? What do the infection rates need to be? What do our preparations need to be for us to get there? Because here's the question that I have when we get to stage four. Stage four is the end of the stay at home order. And that's reopening the highest risk parts of our economy. Once therapeutics have been developed. Okay, so this is the first time that we get another qualifier on top of it. So we need to have therapeutics to end our stay-at-home order. Okay. Now look, whether or not you think that that's punitive or not, at least that is a roadmap. That's a thing we need to add before we get there. Sure, it's out of the control of the government. Because the government's not going to be developing the therapeutics. We're going to be relying on drug companies to develop the therapeutics. But at least that's there. Here's what rubbed me the wrong way, though. This will include, this is stage four, the end of the order, mass gatherings such as concerts, convention centers, live audience sports. Now, previously, Gavin Newsom has said that we're not going to see live sports with a crowd for this year. So is this Gavin Newsom saying that we are going to have a stay-at-home order for the end of the year? And if that's the case, 
Is it statewide? Now, he said earlier that it was sector by sector. My larger point is this. We are now getting to a point where this isn't, when should we open up all bars in America? This is the point where we're getting to, when does my bar open up? And if we're in a situation where people are obviously restless, you know, a lot of California doesn't have air conditioning. People, you know, in between San Francisco and L.A. do. Central air. We don't. Gets hot. People want to be outside. People want to go do stuff. I just feel like to take that extra step of sacrifice, there has to be a positive relationship between the governed and the government. And I know that as a politician, it goes against instincts to put out hard goals that they need to hit because sometimes the goals might not be hit and sometimes you got to move the goals and you don't want to seem like you are a weak or waffling leader. But extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. If you want people to sit in their house for now the third month, well, that's going to require uh, something that we can all tell ourselves. That's going to say, hey, look, we're so close. We only need three more days of getting this infection number down. So that's the reason why I'm going to stay in. I just think there needs to be better communication. And it is personally driving me up a wall when the answer is just simply science. Because let me tell you, there's a lot of people that are going to be experiencing some more freedom, already are. Georgia, Texas, Tennessee, Colorado even, which is part of the weird Western alliance that I still don't totally understand what the point of it is. If California doesn't have it, and this isn't specific to California, this is everywhere. We're all going to be looking at other states and we're all going to be looking at those infection numbers. And if those infection numbers are going up, oh boy, are we going to be happy about our, our leaders that kept us all indoors. But if all the other kids are playing and they ain't getting sick, meanwhile, I have a business or I got a job and I got a draining bank account and I got an extended line of credit that just keeps getting extended further and further and further and I can't make a living. Oh boy, am I going to be upset. Now, this is not to say that I believe we need to open up right now. Absolutely not. I do believe that we need mitigation. I do believe that we need to stay the course. I do believe that we need social distancing. I do believe we need to wash our hands. And I'm fine with extending the stay-at-home order. Because I, for one, don't believe that we should have faith in science. Faith is a whole other branch of understanding and belief. Science is objective. Science is in the open. And science requires disclosure. Is this a credible allegation? I believe that women deserve to be heard, and I believe that they need to be listened to. But I also believe that those allegations have to be investigated by credible sources. The New York Times did a deep investigation 
and they found that the accusation was not credible, I believe Joe Biden. I believe that he is a person who has demonstrated that his love of family, his love of our community has been made perfectly clear through his work as a congressional leader and as an American leader. I know Joe Biden, and I think that he is telling the truth and that this did not happen. That's the voice of former Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, now a Joe Biden surrogate, discussing on television the Tara Reid allegations, something that we've covered here before. Now, I, I bring this up because there's a story via BuzzFeed today that there are new talking points from the Biden campaign. So the Biden campaign had previously been in total shutdown mode. Just no comment at all. I'm sure that they gave very explicit preconditions to the people that were interviewing uh, Joe Biden and anybody else connected to Joe Biden. Don't ask about it. Well, that wall has kind of fallen, and it's because there is more information about this incident. Not only was there a clip of Tara Reid's mom calling in to Larry King Live, of all programs, to discuss the fact that her daughter had recently left uh, D.C. because of an incident with a senator that she had no one to go to other than the press, and she didn't because she didn't want to ruin the senator's reputation. Hmm. Also, Tara Reid's uh, uh, roommates, one of which is still going to vote for Joe Biden, says that she was told about this incident with the same consistent details within a few years of it happening. So the Biden campaign obviously has to do something. And part of the reason why they have to do something is they're trying to make a big old deal about picking a female vice president. Biden said it in what will now be the last debate of the primary that he is going to select a female vice president, which means you've got a lot of powerful female surrogates that are out here on television talking up Joe Biden, trashing Donald Trump, doing the things that good surrogates do. But they're all going to get asked about this. And so you've got to have guidance. And so here are the talking points as obtained by BuzzFeed. And these are all quotes, right? The New York Times did weeks of extensive investigative research, talking to nearly two dozen former Biden staff from the 1990s, including those who worked directly with Ms. Reid. Here's what they found, quote, no other allegation about sexual assault surfaced in the course of the reporting, nor did any former Biden staff members corroborate any details of Ms. Reid's allegation. The, time found, the Times found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Mr. Biden. End quote. All right, I'm going to add a little commentary here. It's very funny they pulled that quote out because that was literally... The exact same quote that New York Times leadership says they altered at the request of the Biden campaign. That exact sentence initially said, aside from all the other people that have come out and said that Joe Biden made them feel uncomfortable. So, all right. So, so they, they curated that sentence. Now that is part of their talking points. Let's go back to the talking points. All four people... Uh, Miss Reed says we're notified 
uh, of an official complaint told the New York Times on the record that they have absolutely no recollection of any such conversation and that they certainly would have remembered it, especially because this alleged conduct would have been so wildly out of character for Joe Biden. Biden has a fierce has been a fierce advocate for women, authoring and fighting to pass the Violence Against Women Act and launching a campaign to end sexual assault on college campuses. He spent his life fighting uh, uh, to end abuses of power against women and using his voice to advocate for women across the country and the world. Here's the bottom line. Vice President Joe Biden has spent over 40 years in public life, 36 years in the Senate, seven Senate campaigns, two previous presidential runs, two vice presidential campaigns, and eight years in the White House. There has never been a complaint, allegation, hint, or rumor of any, any impropriety or inappropriate conduct like this regarding him ever. Pause. This is the first time that we have gotten any kind of specific Biden-originated talking point that goes at the heart of Tara reads honesty because this is the way that you say that without saying it. You just say, why didn't she say it earlier? Why is this happening now? You are ascribing a motive to why somebody would come out with an allegation because now you have a reason to distrust it. That's the reason why you say that. One final talking point. Biden believes that all women have the right to be heard and have their claims thoroughly reviewed. In this case, a thorough review by the New York Times has led to the truth. This incident didn't happen. And that's something that has been taken to task by the New York Times. This is a quote from a New York Times spokesman. BuzzFeed reported on the existence of talking points being circulated by the Biden campaign that inaccurately suggests that a New York Times investigation found that Tara Reid's allegation did not happen. Our investigation made no conclusion either way. As BuzzFeed correctly reported, our story found three former senators whom Reid said she complained to contemporaneously, all of whom either did not remember the incident or said that it did not happen. The story also included former interns who remembered Reed suddenly changing roles and no longer overseeing them, which took place during the same time period that Reed said she was abruptly reassigned. The Times also spoke to a friend who said Reed told her the details of the allegation at the time. Another friend and Reed's brother say that she told them of a traumatic sexual incident involving Biden. All right, a few things to unpack here. Number one. Cheers to CNN for actually asking somebody about this. Number two, this is also a factor that goes into the vice presidential selection. Obviously, the Biden campaign is looking for loyalty. They are looking for somebody that can road test right now what it looks like to go out in front of the press and jump on top of the grenade. This is part of the process, and in many ways, it's part of the job. Why do you think... Mike Pence got the coronavirus task force because <laughs> either you do a good job. Congratulations, buddy. You got yourself a hell of a resume builder for 2024 or you do a bad job and we fire you because you're the reason why coronavirus ran wild. But also and my initial read on this was, wow, uh, a Stacey Abrams freelance, then it didn't go well. You can't go back on the New York Times and say that they said something that they didn't say. 
Because that's the only way that you're going to run afoul of this. If you make the New York Times come out and correct you. But I hadn't realized that this came from the top. This was a Biden talking point. The talking point is say that the New York Times proved this incorrect. And if that's the case, man, I don't know what the strategy is there. Because if you want this to go away as fast as possible, the way that you do it is you say, have Biden come out and say, I don't really remember Tara Reid. I certainly would have never done that. I didn't do that. And that's it. But put a name to it. Put your name to it. Say it publicly. If you do that, then now you are at least giving cover for everybody around you to say, I believe him. He said it. The rest is circumstantial. I believe Tara Reid has a right to be heard. But based on the evidence that we have, I believe Joe Biden because I've always believed Joe Biden. I, I think that's the that's the only way that you can get through this without just actively destroying her. Miss Reed, that is. Which, of course, leads me to the keep an eye out for this portion of the podcast. If they're already saying in messaging that Tara Reid should be suspect considering the fact that she has only come out with these allegations now, we are days, if not hours, away from the anonymously sourced real Tara Reid article. The one that talks all about how she's crazy and every mistake she's ever made in her life will be put into a delightfully colorful collage. Folks, if you would like to continue to make this show a reality, you can help out by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. We have room for all levels. All levels. The Big Tent, just a buck. If you want to be a, a baller, we have the donor class. This uh, gets you a private group chat. Me. You may demand a private podcast whenever you want. Of course, the most popular level is the $3 level. That is where you get a bonus show on Monday, bonus show on Thursday. Make sure that you very rarely miss a day where news happens and you don't get the PX3 experience. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Head on over there right now. Before we start, though, I want to thank everybody. I asked you guys for reviews. We were looking for 10. Guys, we got 60. 60 reviews on iTunes. This community has shown up time and time again. This was no exception Thank you guys so much uh, for, for for doing that and keep going, keep going. If if, if you uh, if if you have the time, then head on over there and and review the show. The biggest thing that I saw from you guys is that you value the objectivity. You value me just trying to call it down the middle as best I can, understanding that everybody's got bias, understanding that everybody's got moments of weakness, but. You guys appreciate that, and therefore, I 
greatly appreciate you. Thank you, thank you, thank you one more time for leaving your review, supporting this show without putting any money in. Uh, I know that more and more that might be the uh, uh, issue going forward, considering what hard times have befallen our country because of this virus, but uh, I do appreciate it. Thank you one more time to everybody who left a review. Okay, one more piece of business before we get going, and that is our campaign undertaker drawing for week one of the Bernie Sanders merch. Oh, yes. Here we go. Our first two winners are, in no particular order, Chris Ordon and somebody named Harambe's Ghost. Please email me your uh email me your uh, uh address a good mailing address and i will get you your bernie stuff but if you did not win don't worry you still have one week to do it on this podcast on take politics seriously the one released on april 29th please comment gong g-o-n-g Gong, G-O-N-G. Write it on this podcast, on the post for this podcast, on Take Politics Seriously. We'll have two more winners next week. Our guest today is Trevor Hoppy. He is an assistant professor of sociology at UNC Greensboro and the author of Punishing Disease, HIV, and the Criminalization of Sickness. Trevor, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So obviously with uh, all the discussion about restrictions on COVID-19, shelter in place orders, the questions on reopening, the law and its intersection with infectious disease is at the front of everybody's mind. And this obviously has a history to it. So this is the, the where we usually like to start with these brainy contextual interviews that we do. Where's the earliest point that we can start uh, where public policy and, and laws intersect with uh, infectious disease in this kind of way? Well, I think sometimes people don't really appreciate the breadth of public health power uh, under the law. It has a long, long history that can stretch back to the plague with quarantine programs instituted to monitor the shipping and transportation of goods in Italian city-states. Um, you know, long, long ago. In American history, you know, we've had kind of two quarantine programs, one at sea, but then also quarantine programs on land, um, like we're seeing now with COVID-19. And that's all been possible under the law for, you know, the, the, the bulk of modern American history. It's nothing new. It's, it's since colonial times, it's been part of a, our way of managing and responding to epidemics. Is there a philosophical difference from the law's perspective of protecting healthy people versus the disease? Or or is there any articulation of whether or not you have more or less rights based on if you're infected? It's a great question. And I think we're seeing a lot of tension kind of brewing over that issue right now from a public health perspective. The, the idea is to implement measures that affect um, everyone broadly 
um, and that's what we're seeing with COVID-19. And then if you are exposed, and not just infected, but potentially exposed, you know, the state may step in to implement more severe quarantine measures. Um, and we're seeing that as well right now, just as like we did with nurses and healthcare providers with Ebola in 2014. Um, so it's not just those who have confirmed been positive, it's also those who have potentially been exposed. And um, with diseases that are easily transmitted like COVID-19, that's been seen as a really important measure for mitigating the epidemic. Obviously, this is not the first time, even in our lifetimes, that we've had a situation where an infectious disease has affected us, not only uh, in terms of our body count, but also culturally. Uh, the HIV spread was really kind of the opposite problem, where there wasn't enough of a public health response until uh, things had gotten far worse than it probably should have. What lessons from that response and how the law intersected with it can we learn now? Well, I think there's a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences between the two epidemics, but there are definitely lessons we can learn. So HIV, primarily in the beginning, impacted what conservatives derided as the quote-unquote 4-H club, homosexuals, hemophiliacs, hookers, and Haitians. Um, that was not a term of endearment. That was meant to sort of... Um, deride and stigmatize the group of people who were impacted by that disease. And that led to a really slow-footed response, in fact, very little response, because the idea was these were already people seen as criminals and outcasts and, and miscreants. And so, you know, if they're dying, what's the skin off our back? Um, today, with COVID-19, it's a little different because you have the prime minister of England, you know, testing positive. Yeah. You have... Uh, celebrities like Tom Hanks testing positive. So it's hard to sort of separate the us from the them, from the mainstream to the outsider. And so we're not seeing quite the same level of blame. Now we are seeing, you know, the president using rhetoric like Chinese virus. And that is a little bit of that. That's about assigning blame and, and responsibility to a group that he doesn't like. Um, so there is a tinge of that, but it's quite different because it's just so, um, you know, prevalent across the population, and it's not—it's um, not impacting just one group of marginalized people. Was there, uh, as various governments took HIV more seriously, were there? Uh, were there uh, laws put in place to stem the spread of it? Absolutely. So there were debates at the time um, over what to do to respond to HIV. And the laws sort of varied by state. It was a state-by-state -state approach, and, and the federal government played some sort of role, but it was a back and forth between the federal government and the states. So you had some states that were way ahead of the curve, um, doing things before the federal government recommended them, like um, names-based testing. Um, so the states maintain now a database of everyone who's tested positive for HIV. And that wasn't done in many states, even though the federal government encouraged it. And then ultimately they did require it in order to receive federal funding. Um, so there were different approaches in terms of um, punishment. I mean, that's what 
what I've been really interested in tracking, both with HIV but also with COVID, is um, it wasn't just about sort of public health responses. There were also laws in place, put in place in states to punish people under the criminal law with HIV um, who were thought to be a, a, a threat or, or to have potentially exposed someone to HIV without their consent. Um, and there were, you know, depending on how you count, between 20 and 30 states that implemented laws like that. Most of them were felonies. And most of them really didn't take into account much medical science. They just said if you if you have any kind of contact, sexual contact with someone and don't tell them, you're guilty of a felony, you're going to prison. Um, so there wasn't a lot of consultation with medical expertise in drafting sure. that legislation. Um, so, so yeah, so that, that we, we did see a range of punitive measures put in place with HIV. And that's what I'm kind of trying to keep my pulse on with COVID is those yeah. calls to punish because I just don't think it's not particularly productive. Well, okay, so so let's 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 focus in on that. Uh, specifically, the punishment would be that you are a carrier of HIV, and either knowingly or unknowingly you spread it. So the 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 kindest way to look at it would be that you are punishing reckless or malicious behavior. Would that be safe to say? Right. Well, there of course are reckless endangerment statutes on the books that could have been used, and those gotcha. typically are like misdemeanor level offenses. Yeah. This took it to another level, which is a felony offense, which is a more severe offense with more severe penalties. Um, so that's sort of the idea, but there's a kind of um, upping the ante with using the felony penalties that takes it to kind of a different level of the criminal law. So, so this this really is not necessarily the fact that there is a rule because there probably would have been applicable rules or there were applicable rules on the books. This is now singling it out and putting a far harsher penalty on it. That's right. And HIV was the only disease that's really been systematically criminalized in that way, even though, of course, there are lots of other diseases that can do harmful things to you or that can be a threat to your health. Um, HIV was singled out. And again, I think that's just because it was easy to blame the people who were getting HIV um, because they were seen as, as like I said earlier, the 4-H club, that, yeah. that marginalized group of people. So, uh, and and obviously this is not to say that, you know, HIV and COVID-19 are, are, you know, in any way the same disease. Obviously COVID-19 is something that can be spread a, a lot easier than, than HIV right. can. Uh, uh, but where would you see there being a, a an, an overlap in something like that, that that, uh, you know, maybe not respecting some of the social distancing things could carry a more specific penalty than than we would look at otherwise? Well, the Justice Department has come out and said that they're willing to use federal terrorism statutes against people who are, for example, spitting or, um, you know, causing um, acting in sort of a threatening or reckless behavior gotcha. um, who are saying they're you know infected with COVID and spitting at people. Um, so I think the Justice Department has made clear that they're ready <laughs> to use those kind of sanctions. And I, I, I think they already have. In fact, I think I read a case where they charged someone under those laws. Um, and it is quite different from HIV because obviously sexual contact is a very different thing than yeah. walking past someone in a store. 
Um, but um, still, I think, you know, it's going to be a rare case, a rare day where that kind of an criminal legal involvement is a sensible approach. And I, I just, I hope that it's easier to see that because so many of us are being affected by it, that it's, it just would be completely impractical to try to lock up, you know, large groups of people who were um, act, you know, who are violating social distancing measures. Well, so I don't think we're going to see that. I, I, I don't know, but I, I would be surprised. And, and the other weird thing is, is that, you know, we're, we're actively letting people out of prison because we want to discourage outbreaks inside of, of, uh, you know, prisons and jails. So, it, the, the the question then becomes okay well you've been fined uh, uh, and that's its own question with the high unemployment rate or in prison but where do we where 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 do you go like there's there's just a, a really in this moment at least right now as we record this at the end of feb or at the, at the end of uh, april 2020 it seems like there there really isn't a ton of recourse even to be punitive not yet. And I think what we're likely to see is is more ticketing. Um, and I think ticketing can be a kind of backdoor to criminalization because this, and people who study the criminal system know if you're assigned a large fine or fee and you can't pay it, the judge can, can put you in jail as a result of that for failure to pay. Um, so it could be a backdoor towards criminalization. And that's why I'm really worried about states like New York and others that are talking about, you know, a thousand or five hundred dollar tickets, because for a very poor person or a homeless person, you know, a thousand dollars might as well be a million dollars. It's yeah. completely unreasonable and out of touch with reality. So that's, you know, primarily where I think we're most likely to see that kind of punitive response is, is mass ticketing. Um Rather than mass arrest, I, I you know I, I hope that we don't see mass arrest, and I, I think we won't. I think again, ticketing is most likely going to be what we're going to see in states like New York that have expressed willingness to do that. You know, and and we've we've already seen something in the last uh, 24 hours. Mayor De Blasio of New York City uh, uh, made a public declaration on his on his Twitter account, and then personally oversaw a breakup of an ultra orthodox uh a Jewish community I believe it was a rabbi's funeral uh to to break up to maintain social distancing measures I, I I do wonder whether or not we are going to start to see more clashes on enforcement the longer this drags on absolutely I mean I think there's no question that there's going to be rising tensions because we're all in this weird state of limbo, just sort of waiting and, and isolated from each other. And so the more the loneliness kicks in, the more the lack of community kicks in and takes its effect, the more people are going to be really itching to get out. And so we're going to see more and more of that. Um, and, you know, New York has obviously tried to flex its muscle in a way that I don't think states, I live in North Carolina and the polit politics of it is just so different that I would be shocked. You know, I don't think we're going to see those kinds of actions here just because there's no political appetite for it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, there has been, uh, there are signs, right, that states are ready to flex that legal muscle and, and to crack down in a pretty um, intense way. And, you know, there is a difference between breaking up an event, of course, 
And if there was a mass arrest of the people at that event, that would be a very different kind of intervention. So for now, it doesn't look, you know, just breaking things up is not really punishment. Um, and so I don't know if he, if there was ticketing of the people involved, but I didn't read that. So. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm looking, I'm looking through the story right now just to make sure that we get all the facts right. But uh, aside from uh, some, some scolding, and this was a gathering of two thousand people. Uh, right. Yeah, it's no small event. Exactly. It was not, 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 not a small event. But uh, uh, certainly, it's, it's, if we begin to talk about stuff like this, and you know, even where I am in Oakland, California, uh, we have a, a similar situation where you know look it's getting warm this is normally when people like to go out and they like to yeah. enjoy the uh we have a nice little lake here that people like to uh, congregate around certainly uh I've, I've heard from listeners in wisconsin michigan ohio places that have very locked down winters uh there is there is a a cyclical nature to going outside <laughs> that is is right now there's going to be a rising tension as to uh, exactly how that will be allowed to be done under the law. Yeah, and even interpersonally, I mean, I see it in my friends. Some of my friends are willing to, you know, have a small dinner party with another couple. Other friends are like, there's no way I'm going to do that. And so I'm sure lots of communities around the country, there's tensions rising, not just between governments and, you know, the people, but also between people of in course. terms of, how we make sense and respond to this threat, um, we have different levels of risk tolerance. And so that's going to become more and more apparent as as governments try to ramp up the economy again. Well, let's, let, let's draw a circle around that for a second. Obviously, risk tolerance goes hand in hand with the otherization of, of I mean, all things in general, but, but disease in specific. And whether or not it's as ugly as the 4-H club was with HIV, there still is a question uh, or still is a, a an animating factor of, well, this isn't here. This isn't our problem. This is this is a problem right. in New York. It's a problem in, in L.A. It's a problem somewhere else. This we, We've not gotten it yet and we might not ever get it. And maybe that's true. But the the public policy and the and the penalization of stuff like that has to be broader than that mindset. And yet, I guess here's, here's where I would uh, ask you is the criminalization of this stuff effective in getting that message across, or is it just a way that, you know, the government can feel good that they are doing something? It's a great question. I think public health experts would say uniformly that criminalization is not an effective strategy for controlling an epidemic, right? It's, that's not what it's good at doing because it's individual level and it's assigning blame. And diseases will move through populations without regard to finger pointing or, um, or prejudice, right? It's, 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 it's biological rather than sociological. And so I think from a public health perspective, you know, there's really no justification for widespread criminalization. Um, there are these erratic cases that you hear of where people do something really pretty horrible and, you know, injecting someone with HIV. Sure. For example. Yeah. I mean, that's just so rare. Um, 
you know, there are other laws that we could use. We don't need specifically disease laws to, to deal with that kind of person. Um, so, you know, other than those really rare cases, I just don't think there's any public health evidence that would say criminalization does us any good. Is there anything softer than that, that uh, uh, the government can? I mean, if it's not ticketing, is it, you know, maybe whoa, warnings yeah. or tracking or uh, I mean, I guess that Absolutely. brings along its its own uh, problems. But yeah, anything sub uh, fines or, or jail time. Absolutely. So public health has lots of tools at its, at its disposal. And one of them is health threat to other statutes, which are civil in nature which are, have a series of processes in place for dealing with someone that they would term, quote unquote, recalcitrant, someone who is not following the rules and doing something they think could be a threat. And there, there are lots of interventions that, the, you know, that, that can happen under those laws from um, you know, requiring a person to go through counseling or testing or um, to you know, undergo quarantine in extreme cases. Um, and that can all take place under the civil law without the use of those kinds of punitive measures like arrest or, um, you know, even a fine or a fee. Um, so definitely there are lots of tools in their, in their, um, in their belts that they could use. Um, and I think public health is well, well aware of all this. It's just the broader public. We're not really familiar with this stuff because we don't interact with it on a day-to-day -day basis. But if you look at the law, there's a lot there. For public health to do outside of the criminal law. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely a a, a tricky situation because not only is it moving so fast, but also uh, you you really this is is a referendum on the public trust to the government, right? That, that, that the government has its best uh, uh, intentions at heart and. Uh, obviously, in the case of the HIV epidemic, uh, I could certainly understand the skepticism from the affected communities as to how much the government cared about them. And uh, uh, we're seeing that now. Is is there only so much any of these remedies can do at all if there is no faith in our leaders? That's a great question. I mean, I think that's like a million dollar question because we're just seeing the people who are protesting, right, are people with especially low faith. In, in our institutions of governance. And so I don't think that's a coincidence um, who are saying, open up the economy, you know, let us live our lives, let us die if we want to, um, because we don't, effectively because we don't trust you to deal with the problem and we think you're not handling it in the best way. So I think that's, you know, for decades, we're gonna be studying this, um, looking at even like Sweden, which has not implemented any of these measures and one explanation for how it's worked there without, you know, things really falling apart has been that there's a high trust in government in, in that country. And so people are following the rules without having to use the law to really force it onto people. Um, so I think that would be a great comparative study to think about how trust in government has, is it going to affect how this is all rolling out? So definitely it's a, it's a hurdle. Um, yeah, it's a challenge. You know, and Sweden, Sweden is an interesting case. Although, you know, there's there's some number stuff that I think we'll probably uh, spend a lot of time looking into as this continues to play Absolutely. out. But, uh, yeah. you know, part of it is the give and take. 
the give and take of, you know, Sweden left open barbershops and bars and restaurants and told people to stay away from each other. You know, we will find out exactly how much that was a a, a good idea compared to shutting everything down. Uh, but But I guess it is indicative of the push and pull between leadership and the lead on how much we can be trusted and how much things need to be spelled out uh if even you know at at the uh end of a gun or a fine or jail time yeah and there's just so much we don't know and and that's the trouble with science is it moves so slowly and policy can't wait and so we have to act before we have the full picture because if we wait until we have the full picture we it's too late um, and so I think that's the real underlying, that's what's, you know, just undergirding so much of this frustration and tension is that we learn new things every day and the picture can change. Why is the death rate so high in New York City compared to other places? We're going to be, it's going to take us a long time to answer that question properly. Um, and by the time we've answered it properly, you know, it's going to be in our rearview mirror. Um, <laughs> so that's the challenge, right? Um, is it's just, so perplexing. Why is Sweden working? You know, these policy responses look so different, and yet the outcomes don't seem to to follow a clear, logical, you know, line. So it's a, it's a puzzle for sure. Yeah, and and also it's 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 hard to get accurate uh, uh, comparisons when people are all counting their numbers different. And, uh, you know, some yeah. some are not counting them at all in, in, in the cases of some countries. So, oh, geez, it is it is an absolute mess. And, and more specifically, trying to uh, uh, formulate all these situations on a local level has has got to be a challenge for anybody who's put in that position. Yeah, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, it's, I, I don't envy policymakers right now. Uh, are are there any other lessons that we did not touch on through the uh, uh, the, the 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 spread of of HIV that you think would be applicable in this situation? I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, for me, it just boils down to that 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 core message that punishment is not an effective response for from a public health perspective. You know, it might do other things. It might make us feel some kind of safer or might make us feel like justice was served in some kind of way, but it's not going to do anything to protect us uh, ultimately from the disease. So that's what I just hope is that we don't get caught up in that blame and shame and punish fever that so often haunts these epidemics. Yeah. And I would only imagine that, uh, oh, yes, here's, here would be my final question. How much of these kinds of laws linger or are then used beyond their initial intention to do even more harm? That's a great question. I, I, we've seen with HIV, the science has changed so much. Now you can take a pill a day that effectively prevents you from getting HIV. Or if you have HIV, you can also take a pill a day that can make it impossible for you to transmit the disease. The law hasn't accounted for that because the law moves so slowly. It takes forever for lawmakers to get to a consensus point where they want to change the law. Um, so we're going to live with other, whatever laws we put in place for a long, long time. And so we need to think real careful, carefully about the implications of whatever language we put on the books because it can have unintended effects like 
you know, in my research, we have cases where, you know, there was no possibility of someone transmitting HIV, either because they were on treatment or there was sexual contact that posed no risk. And we have people being put in prison for four, eight, 10 years, 20 yeah. years. Um, so whatever we do now, we're going to live with for decades to come. And so I just hope that lawmakers consult public health experts really closely in that process. Um, because we're going to, like I said, it's going to be with us for a long time. Yeah. And that's, that, that is, that is a chilling thought because if a lot of these laws can uh, effectively criminalize, uh, uh, you know, the, the, or, you know, criminalize the social lives or complicate already complicated situations with, uh, you know, a certain section of, of our population now when it comes to HIV, imagine the, the possible ramifications if we start making public policy laws on, public gatherings and, and stuff like that based on COVID. That that seems like it could go wrong really quickly. Absolutely. All right. Well, my guest has been Trevor Hoppy. He is an assistant professor of sociology at UNC Greensboro and the author of Punishing Disease, HIV, and the Criminalization of Sickness. You can also find him on Twitter, Trevor Hoppy, and that is H-O-P-P-E. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Justin. I really appreciate it. And that will wrap it up for today. If you would like to get in touch with the show, just go ahead and send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. If you want to hit us up on social, it is Justin R. Young on Twitter and on Instagram. I also would like to encourage people to head on over to my Discord. This is the 24-7 chat room where you can talk about politics with other PX3 listeners. I can tell you it's the best live feed of news that comes in. I use it to put together every single show. bit.ly slash jury discord, D-I-S-C-O-R-D. Of course, I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier, Middle-Aged Mike. Chad, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zachy Chan, TroubleFilm.com, Nick, Utah, Jimmy Montana, D Laser, Captain Bunzo, Kilowatt Podcast, Frozen Summers, Milk Leg Scoop, Emily, Wolf Glen 99, Berkeley, Steven, The Gen, NH Blumkin, Robert Eoxy, Andrew, Brad, Daily Tech News Show, Darren, DL, J Milius, Jonathan, Lindsay, Miranda, Nick, Nomadic Terran, Olin and Angela, Richard, and Thor, you want to join their ranks? You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, uh, I saw a show that was talking about politics. I saw another show that was talking about politics. And here's the thing. All the kids want to talk about these days is politics. But there is only one. One program. That dare to talk about all Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>